All right, you guys ready for part two of Joy to the World? Thanks, Grant. Yes. Uh, Grant is ready, yes. So I want to remind you guys that this Christmas season, we're talking about Luke 12, 32. We got on the screen. I challenge you guys to think about memorizing this. Did anybody do it? I'm sure you didn't, but it's easy. So uh, Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so this Christmas season, we're spending a lot of time focusing on the Father's good pleasure, of the, his good nature, his joy that's in his heart. And so two weeks ago, I shared with you guys about um, just sort of the prophecies leading up to Jesus coming to the earth. You guys remember that? And we talked about just the intricate detail that God put into the moment of Jesus' birth. And next week, we're going to talk extensively about the actual, like, meaning around his birth. And today, I want to kind of look at some of the peripheral of the story through the context of what it means for joy to have come to the world. Amen? So to do that, we're going to do Luke chapter 2, 8 through 15. We're going to, uh, this is our big scripture for today. So you guys know this. This is the Christmas story, um, and this picks up immediately after Jesus was born, okay? So this is Luke chapter 2, and it says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear because they thought they saw a UFO. Oh, no, just kidding. You can go back. Uh, Can you imagine? That's like what the UFO sightings, that's what it's like, right? This big light comes out of the sky, but this turns out to be an angel. And the angel, you guys, I'm kidding. And the angel said to them, here we go, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Everybody say great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The city of David is actually where David was born. It's Bethlehem. Uh, And then he goes on to say this. Sorry, I'm sorry, Tyler. I'm making this hard for you. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men, among those with whom he is pleased. Okay. So you guys know the story, right? We're pretty familiar with this passage. There's a couple of things that are really interesting to note about the shepherds that I want to sort of fill you in about. The first of which is this. Bethlehem is the city they're in, right? Bethlehem is where David was from. That's why Joseph, who's from the line of David, and so was Mary, they had to go there to be counted in the census. And so in Bethlehem, what you might not know is that this is where the sheep, the lambs that were raised for the sacrifice were raised. The temple sheep were actually raised and pastured in Bethlehem. So it's very likely these shepherds that the angels were appearing to were not just normal shepherds. They weren't people like David was when he was younger and he was just out doing the family flock. These were most likely the shepherds who were tending to the sacrificial lambs who would be offered as sacrifices. The sin offering, depending on who sinned in the temple, one of the payments was a lamb. And we know that Jesus became the final payment. He became the lamb. He became like a lamb to pay the final payment for our sacrifice, right? For our sin. And so what's interesting is this angel comes and he shines brightly with the radiance of God. And he basically tells these shepherds, you're out of a job. In like 30, 33 years, you will now be irrelevant. And I love the heart of God to say, 
prep yourself now, <laughs> right? Just giving you about a three-decade heads up that eventually what you're doing with these flocks, it won't really matter. They were outside because one of the laws to raise the temple sacrificial lambs, they had to be outside 24-7, they couldn't bring them in at night. So these shepherds are outside at night taking care of them. These were not ordinary shepherds. These were essentially priests that this was their job. They were spiritual shepherds, so to speak. And I don't know about you, but I'm fascinated by this moment of God saying they get to be like the first other people alerted to the birth of Jesus because their job was raising the sacrifice. Their job was tending to the sacrifice, was painstakingly making sure. I mean, these animals, they couldn't have broken legs. There was all these things they had to do. They actually would wrap them in swaddling cloths at times as well. And so the angel comes and says, hey, the sacrifice has just been born. I don't know about you, but I, I love that. I love, and it's good, good news. What does the angel say? I'm bringing you good news of great joy. It's amazing in my opinion, when I read this story, I read it like all of heaven was watching this. I don't know, you know, maybe they rock, paper, scissored, and that angel got to be the one assigned to tell the shepherds. And the rest of the angels are like, I can't take it. I can't take it. We have to come. Glory, 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 right? They're so excited. They burst forth on the scene. That's what this story is telling us. And they begin to worship God. And then the shepherd's response is epic. They're like, we got to figure this out. We have an idea of where this could be, and they go to Bethlehem, and they get to worship baby Jesus with his family surrounding them. Isn't it amazing? So these weren't any ordinary shepherds. They were uh, a part of David's hometown, which is so significant if you look at the story as well, which we talked about the prophecies, that this is coming from the line of David. If you don't believe that God does full circle moments, now you do, right? The Christmas story is a beautiful picture of God saying, nothing is wasted, Nothing is wasted. He remembers even, it had been like 14 generations since David was king when Jesus was born. And he knew exactly where to place them. It's amazing. So the angel comes and says, I bring you good news of great joy. And so the question for us this morning is, what actually is joy? Right? What is joy? I think a lot of times joy and happiness are experienced at the same time. So often that we've told ourselves that joy is happiness or that happiness is joy, but they're actually two completely different things. You can experience joy and not be happy. Did you know that? You can experience joy and your circumstances are still very not joyful or what we would consider, you know, by happiness. When the angel is saying uh, there's good news of great joy, he didn't fix their circumstances. He didn't fix the culture that was happening at the day. There were so many stressful things in that time period that they were living under. They didn't, God didn't fix that. So he begins to show us something that applies for you and I today that was as applicable for these shepherds on that night. And it's this, that joy is something we can step into regardless of how happy we are in our life. So our constitution and our Bill of Rights as Americans, we have this sort of, uh, we, we get three things, says the government. We get life, liberty, do you guys remember this from history? And the pursuit of happiness. And then in the kingdom, we get life through the blood of Jesus, we get liberty through the blood of Jesus, but we don't get the pursuit of happiness. 
It's not a kingdom principle. And I think for some of us, when we're not thinking about it like that, they merge together and we sort of think that God has given us this unalienable right to the pursuit of happiness, and he didn't. He didn't. He gave us an unalienable right to his son, to the person of Jesus, right? And I think it's important for us to make the distinction between what actually is joy. So when we're talking about experiencing joy in the Christmas season, what are we talking about? Am I saying that all your problems are going to go away and now you'll just be happy? I wish. (laughs) But I'm not. What I'm saying to you is there is something higher, something deeper, something greater going on that you actually have access to, but it requires us first acknowledging joy and happiness are not the same thing. When we pursue happiness for the sake of an emotional experience, we actually miss out on what joy truly is. So when we pursue happiness, like this is what's going to make me happy. I need a new job. I need a new car. I need a new life. I need whatever we feel, right? That compulsive need. When we begin to pursue happiness for the sake of having that emotion, we've missed out on joy entirely. Because joy is not an emotion. It's actually a person. Joy is a person and it's a perspective, So when God says, when the angel says, I'm giving you good news of great joy, he's inviting us into a higher level of thinking, a different viewpoint that you can't get on an emotional level. Okay, stick with me here. Galatians 5.22 talks about what happens when the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, right? We've talked about this a lot the last couple of months. So when you're experiencing the Holy Spirit, when you are being filled with his spirit, some things begin to happen in your life. Our last series, we talked a lot about the fruit that you bear based on what you're putting inside. When you're putting the Holy Spirit inside of you on a regular basis, you're focusing on him. This is the fruit that comes out of you. It's what you bear. It's the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. The first thing is love, right? We all know this. Why? God is love. So if God's at work in your life, there's going to be love present at some capacity. And then the second thing is joy. This is interesting because in the Bible, most of the time when there's a list, it's actually a hierarchy. It's like an order of importance. And so here we see that the most important thing the Holy Spirit does in your life is love. And the second most important thing he does in your life is joy. But we've been sort of conditioned, I think, a lot by religious mindsets that we can, you know, hate our life and still be a believer. That we can be miserable and still be a believer. And technically, you can, but you're missing out on what the work of joy is doing in your life. Joy is a person. So if you're needing joy in your life, what you're actually needing is more of God. Amen? I know this in my own life as well. I experience this in my own life where there's times where I'll think, I'm not happy right now. And the Lord will go, oh, sweet girl, I don't really care about your happiness. (laughs) Okay, thanks, Lord. At some level he does, right? But, But what he cares about is that we're in line with him because he knows when we're in line with him, happiness is what, it's the byproduct, We don't pursue happiness in the kingdom, but it it comes as we pursue his way. Amen? So I'm not telling you be miserable, that's God's will for your life. I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you what you need to do is focus on getting more of God, and the rest will take its place. How do we know this? Well, Jesus himself says we seek first our pursuit of happiness. No. 
We seek first the kingdom, and then everything else gets added to us. So here's my question for you, one of my questions. Are you deferring joy because you're waiting for your circumstances to change? In your mentality, in your life, and this is a question I'm asking myself as well in lots of different areas of my life, am I refusing to experience joy because I'm waiting for God to do something about my circumstances? Am I rejecting his person because joy is a person because he's not fixing my problem? Just going to let that simmer just for a second. Jesus makes this fascinating statement about life with him, and he talks about how his burden is easy and his yoke is light. And I don't know anyone who's been a believer for longer than 10 minutes that genuinely feels like life in the kingdom is easy, <laughs> right? It's not. I mean, there are times where it's effortless, but like, like there's that great scripture that says we labor into rest. Like we actually have to, we, we have to participate in this, right? And I saw this interesting interview with Bill Johnson, and he was talking about the yoke in, in, uh, in this scripture. And he was talking about the picture of a oxen, two oxen yoked together. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but what, what the word picture is, basically there's always a larger oxen that's carrying the bigger share, and then one that's being trained up, positioned next to him. And he said, this is what it's like in the kingdom where Jesus is the larger oxen, and he's taking the lion's share of the load right? And so when he says to us, come be with me, my burden is easy, my yoke is light. What he's saying is when we're in partnership together, I'm carrying the heavy part and you get to sort of, you know, reap all the benefits. And so when we begin to feel like our burden is not light, well, if we go back to this word picture, what would be happening? For a smaller oxen to feel like their burden was too heavy, it would be because they're veering away from the way the larger oxen is going, right? Even a little bit, even one degree. It's like, this doesn't feel good. I'm getting chafed here, Lord, you know? And so when we are experiencing life in the kingdom, the place of joy, happiness, all of that that we're looking for comes from the place of being right in line with what God is doing. And when we are not experiencing that, we have to stop and ask ourselves, what's going on inside of me that's causing me to lean? What am I mad at you about, Lord? Well, I can't be mad at God. That's not a Christian thing to do. Well, somebody told it to me like this one time. They said, as long as you're calling hatred frustration, you'll never actually repent. I was like, uh, don't repeat that one. <laughs> as long as you're calling hatred frustration, you won't feel a need to repent. Why? Because it's not that bad. Everybody's frustrated about some things. It's not that bad. But if you're actually hating someone and you're just calling it frustration, there's something happening inside of you. Now, I'm not saying this to shame you. I'm really saying this to go, hey, we just have to be honest with ourselves. One of the biggest breakthroughs that came in my life was when I literally stopped and I had to be honest with myself and I said, God, unfortunately, I actually hate that person. <laughs> I was calling it frustration. I was calling it all these things. I was pretending it wasn't that bad. But if I'm really honest before you, you already know this is not good. But now I have to do something about it because I know hatred is wrong, right? I know that's a sin. So it led me to go deal with my heart, God, and I actually got breakthrough. 
This is what it's like when we're talking about deferring joy. We're looking at God and saying, am I saying I won't receive something from you until you fix this in my life? And as long as I'm doing that, it's not going to be fixed because here's why. Here's your, your woke moment for you, okay? He will fix it through your encounter with him. He's not going to fix it so that you'll encounter him. Your experience is directly, uniquely positioned just for you to experience him as he fixes it. That's the way the kingdom works. So I'm giving you great news of great joy, guys. (laughs) There's great joy available for you. Joy is God's perspective, and here's an interesting thing. God is always doing more than you can see. On the peripheral, behind the scenes, there is so much more happening than you could ever imagine about whatever it is you're dealing with right now. Whether it's a family relationship, you know, the holidays are one of those times where you kind of go, well, I thought I liked my family, but the more I'm around you, I'm kind of wondering, (laughs) I mean, maybe not, you know, I shouldn't, my parents listen to this recording, so I love you, mom and dad, I'm not talking about you. Um, But you know what I'm saying? We get this idea in our minds, and then the holidays kind of awaken us to go, wait a second, I I wasn't so sure. I thought we were on the same page. Clearly, we're not. Or like, you know, between you and your spouse, you're going, well, I, I thought we were on the same page about how we view life. And all of a sudden, you're like, we're on different planets. We're not even, you know. It just brings those things up. So how do you have joy in the midst of that? The first thing you've got to, like, nail down in your understanding is that God is doing more than you understand, Let's bring it back to the Christmas story and let me show you this. Grant touched on this a little bit earlier, but I want to talk about the Magi for a second, okay? So the Magi, the word Magi, comes from the actual word Magos, which is magic. This is a group of Persian, basically mystics, think psychics, palm readers, astrologists, plus a couple of seer prophets in there. That's the Magi. So, you know, an awkward bunch in the kingdom, like how we would perceive them. And so the Magi... I shared with you guys some scripture, uh, a couple of prophecies two weeks ago, and I mentioned that in Numbers 24, it's very possible that Balaam was from this group of magi. We don't know that for sure, but it's possible. But did you know the magi show up in a lot of different scriptures? Daniel 9, we talked about two weeks ago. Esther 1, 12 through 14. Jeremiah 39, 3, list one by name. Acts 8, 9 through 11. Acts 13, 6 through 11. All of these actually mention people who were magi. They were of a group of Persian people, and they were called actually the kingmakers. And the reason they were called the kingmakers is because it was their job to pick the future king, among other things. So they were spiritual and they were political. They were the people who were consulted, if you know the story of Daniel, they were consulted when the king or rulers would have dreams they couldn't understand. They would consult the stars. They were, they were a crazy bunch of people. And they were also very influential. If you can imagine, you're the one who picked the future king, now that king likes you, right? They had a lot of resources. And so we see the Magi in the Christmas story, and we know this song, uh, Tyler and I were talking about this last week, the We Three Kings, you know, of Orientar who tried to smoke the rubber cigar. No, do you guys know? Uh, that's the, I, can't, I can't even remember the real one because that's ingrained in me. Um, But the three kings, now you probably already know this, but there were not three kings. There was no mention of it being three. There's three gifts, but there's no clarity on that there were actually three kings. And they weren't actually kings. That comes from the fact that they were these king makers. So they were wise men, but they were also mystics. So are you guys tracking with who they were? Okay. So pause on that. 
little history background for you. At the time that Jesus was born, the king of Persia, the emperor of Rome, the military commander of Rome, and Herod himself were all nearing the end of their life, okay? So if you know anything about history, you know political turnover was happening. They all knew it. So back to our story. Herod's minding his own business. No doubt he had seen the star situation. He just didn't know what it meant. Uh, The documentary I shared with you guys a couple weeks ago talks about how this star situation probably lasted about nine months. It was several months long that it was appearing in the sky. So Herod would have known exactly what they were talking about when they said they were following a star. Now, Herod, one other piece of history for you. Herod was not born Jewish. He connived and bribed his way to become the king of the Jews, and the emperor gave him the name king of the Jews sort of as a mocking gesture, okay? So Herod is listed in history as the king of the Jews, but he wasn't technically Jewish. In walks these wise men. Historically, most likely, these three gift-bearing group, they came with something like a 1,000 armed guards, all probably riding Persian steeds, And everything I can tell, historically speaking, suggests that these wise men, however many there were, would have come with all the pomp and circumstance you can imagine. The conical hats, the beautiful, we saw these beautiful robes that Judy had last week, something like that. I mean, opulence. You guys remember that old Capital One commercial where the old Russian guy is sitting and everything's gold and the remote control is gold? Anybody know this? And he looks at the screen, he goes, opulence, I have it. This is like the wise men. They walk in, they come in to Israel, and there, can you just imagine a thousand Persian steeds carrying a caravan of like treasure chests coming down Western? Everybody would be like, what is happening? Now, I forgot to mention to you that Herod's personal army was out of the country at this time. Okay? Historically, they were not there. So these wise men come in. They're carrying lots of gifts. Most guesses say somewhere around $2 million of today's money in gifts of frankincense, gold, and myrrh. We're talking about a major caravan. What is that guy that brings the balloon when you win the, you know, the big check? Anyways, tangent. Okay. So they come in and they walk up to Herod and the first thing out of their mouth is like the burn of all burns. This is what they say. Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? Are you guys tracking with me? Remember, Herod wasn't born Jewish. His whole life, he was neurotic. He was crazy. When we were in Israel, we got to see some of the, I mean, this man was nuts, okay? And he was always fighting even against his own sons because he wanted this place so badly. And the first thing the wise men say, and most historical scholars will tell you, they knew exactly what they were doing. They were, they were creating a power dynamic there. Who's the one who was born king of the Jews? And Herod immediately goes into a panic, right? And he starts going, uh, what is this star? And, he, you know, he's trying to fake it, and they all can tell he's not faking it. You know, he's not, he's not pulling one over on them. But if we go back to the history I shared with you, it was time for the Magi to be looking for the future king of Persia because their king was about to die. It was time to be looking for who was going to be the new emperor of Rome. So here they come in with all their pomp and circumstance and make it clear to Herod, it's time, and we're looking for this little baby. And Herod goes nuts, and he kills all the babies too and under, including his own son. That's not really in the Bible, but that's the historical perspective. He actually killed his own son too because he was crazy. And then the Magi get to Jesus. And everything up to this point in the story, if you look at it through the context of the culture and the history, suggests that this was not just a spiritual move but a political move as well. 
And when they get there, they unload all these gifts into Mary and Joseph's little house. Can you just imagine? You know, where are we going to put the extra myrrh? I don't know. Just keep piling it up, you know. Can, I can't even imagine what it smelled like in there. And then they bow down and they worship him. And there was no political agenda, it turns out. It was a spiritual agenda. They believed, most likely, most of the Persian uh, magi were Zoroastrians, which means they believed in lots of gods, kind of like Greek mythology. They believed in good ones and bad ones. And they believed that Yahweh was a good God, and they wanted to be on his side. So they go, and they worship Jesus. Now, here's why I tell you all of this, okay? Because in this story, we have Jesus, this little helpless baby. We have Mary and Joseph fighting against all heaven and earth, all hell, all, you know, spiritual and unspiritual, all of it, to protect this little baby. And because there was no one there who could be raised up to anoint Jesus for his rightful place, God raised up these magi, these people who aren't from his family, aren't from his tribe, and he brings them on this almost two-year journey to bestow upon them so much money that they could flee to Egypt and have no issue with working. They didn't work for several years while they were in Egypt. Are you guys tracking with me? Because God is always doing something more in your story. God is always doing something that will confound you. And here's why. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So the Magi are the Lord's. Their resources actually belong to God. Every resource on the face of the earth, it belongs to God. It might be currently held in the hands of someone who doesn't like God or in some sort of principality or whatever. But at the end of the day, the earth is the Lord's and what? everything in it. So regardless of what's going on in your life right now, God is doing something behind the scenes of your story. He is raising up resources, help, uh, confirmation. Can you imagine, I love at the end of this part, I'm sorry I don't have this for the screen, but at the end when the wise men are done worshiping Jesus, it says Mary pondered all these things in her heart. What was that about, Lord? <laughs> And what are we going to do with all this frankincense? She was the original MLM Young Living. Sorry, it's a bad joke. Put myself back on track after that one. Um, but can you imagine? And she's sitting there and she's going, what is all this for? What is all this going to, you know? And she's just pondering it all. But there's no doubt in her mind God is doing what he said he was going to do. He is taking care of us. And the seeds he's planting in her life, in Joseph's life, around Jesus as a baby, are no doubt the seeds that bore the fruit of her being sane, watching her son take up the cross. Of her knowing that she didn't have to despair because there's a lot more going on to this story. So my question for you today is, have you considered what's going on in the peripheral of your story? the things you're believing God for. The thing is that he often doesn't answer our prayers the way that we want him to. I don't know why. It would be so much easier, Lord. But he doesn't. We say, God, I, I want my marriage to be better. And the Lord says, great, stop doing this. Well, wait, no, I was saying make him better or make her, you know what I'm saying? And the Lord goes, yeah, I will do that by you encountering me. See, everything is about the great joy, the person of joy, the person of peace. Philippians 4, 7, we can put this on the screen. It says it this way. 
There's a peace that surpasses all understanding. In fact, the verse right before this talks about not being anxious or worried about anything. Why? Because when we truly trust God, we understand that I might not have a clue where it's coming from, but it's coming. I might not have a clue how you're going to provide for me today, Lord, but I know you will because you said you would. And then he says this, in the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Here's what this means. There's a realm of thinking that you can understand, and then there's something past that. There's a peace, there's a joy past what you can actually understand. That's what God's inviting us into this Christmas season. That's what he's inviting us into when he says, behold, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What he's saying is there's something so much more than what your brain can comprehend. It requires you yielding your heart to me and receiving me in your life. It requires you not waiting to be happy or, you know, to be content in your life until your circumstances change, but say, God, I will be content on you alone. It's like what Psalm 63 says, that it's his presence that is satisfying. And when we get this into our mind, when we begin to renew our mind around this perspective, things begin to change, not because of anything besides he begins to work. Your relationship with your kids, with your family, with your job, with your car, with whatever, right, with your house, it all begins to change when we stop focusing on that and we begin to say, Lord, I just need you. I need a lot more of you actually right now. So my last question for you, I guess I have two, one more after this, but my last question for you this morning is, are you allowing yourself to be filled by the atmosphere of your circumstances or are you allowing yourself to be filled on the presence of God? Because they're not always the same. And I'm standing up here telling you, I'm doing this in my own life. I'm practicing this in my own life. In fact, last week, God graciously allowed me like six opportunities to practice this in my own life. And I caught myself about the third one, wanting to just be like, oh, no. And then I thought, you know what? No, Lord, you are teaching me something in this. And if I will reject the frustration if I will reject the, the atmosphere of what's not going right about this and tap into you. Now, I'm not saying we do this and then this magically gets fixed. What I'm saying is we do this and then this magically gets fixed. So now what seemed like an astronomical issue is not actually that big. Right? It's like this. Graham Cook says it like this. We have this understanding, or we need to have this understanding, that the love of God is 100% turned on towards you always. It never turns off. It's like the mirror analogy I shared with you guys in worship. It is always flowing towards you at 100%. Our brains have conditioned in a way to say, I feel that when I'm in the mountaintop, when things are going well, all your promises are yes and amen, God, because you did that thing, you know, and I'm, I'm feeling it and I'm loving it. And then like three days later, all of a sudden, I don't think your promises are ever yes and amen, Lord, because you're not doing this and you're not doing this. And now I can't feel that love. Now I'm in this valley because I feel distant from God. And this is the picture that he, that he shares, and I love this, and it's this. You realize that your valley goes away when you recognize that God's love is the same to you, his presence is the same to you when you're feeling it and when you're not, 
right? So now we're not having days where we're on the mountaintop and we're in the valley. Now we're just having days where the grace of God looks different. It's like, it's like this quote. I love this quote. There's now in the kingdom no more good days and bad days. There's only days of grace. Grace to overcome and grace to endure. Now it's not about what you're not doing for me, Lord. It's about how do I experience you? How do I encounter joy in the midst of this virgin birth in the middle of nowhere? I mean, do you know what I'm saying? How do I experience you when nothing in my life is changing, but knowing that as I experience you, everything in my life will change? So it brings me back to my question again is, in what ways are you deferring or rejecting joy because you're waiting on something in your life to change before you'll encounter him in that way? It's a hard question to ask, but I think we need to ask it. I want us to be the healthiest people there are, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically. I want us to be healthy. I want us to be able to face what we do and don't believe about God. Because we're not on some sort of hierarchy here saying, oh, you're a better person, you're a worse person because of what you think. No, we're all just authentically going, well, this is where I'm at. And I could tell you hours of my story that led me to this place, but I'm drawing a line in the sand today and I'm saying, I'm trusting you, God, that if I encounter your joy, you will fix it. Amen? So here's what we're going to do to end. I just want to take a second and just ask this question to the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to make it prick our interest and, you know, Think about it for a second. It's another thing to actually take it to the Lord. Amen. So I'm not going to make you do this, but I'm just going to.